0: Today we are going to be speaking with Winslow Hastie, President and CEO of the Historic Charleston Foundation, an organization that was founded in 1947 with a broad mission of historic preservation of one of the most unique cities in North America, Charleston, South Carolina. As you will learn in this podcast, historic preservation has evolved into more than a movement to simply save historic buildings. The foundation has broadened its scope into balancing the needs of modern society with protecting the sensitive fabric of the historic district. Winslow, tell us about the work of the Historic Charleston Foundation.
1: What I always like to say is the the sort of discipline of of historic preservation is a lot broader than a lot of people realize. Um, While we do work on saving historic buildings, Uh, Preservation has really expanded beyond just historic buildings, and we get involved in urban planning issues, growth management issues, tourism, economic development, transportation, affordable housing. So it touches on a lot of different things. And another piece that has expanded really in the last, I would say last 15 to 20 years is understanding that preservation is a lot more than just buildings, that it's about the culture and the people that make up a place. So it's really more about preserving place than it is about necessarily preserving buildings. And place, of course, extends beyond physical buildings to sort of culture and people and community. Talk to us about the Charleston community.
0: What pressures have you seen on that community over the past several decades?
1: Obviously, Charleston is changing dramatically and has been uh, really since, I would say, Hurricane Hugo was sort of a I think an important point to kind of uh, look at sort of analyzing the the rapidity of the change that we've been seeing obviously lots of development a lot of uh, people migrating to the low country and so there's a lot of change happening Um, i grew up here i grew up downtown moved away for a long time and came back in 2005 and even in that time period a lot had changed and certainly since i've moved back the last 16 years has been an enormous amount of change on the peninsula and so there's only so much that we can, um, so much of that change that we can really affect um, and have have influence over but um, you know I would say some of the things that we've done that I'm most proud of have uh, related to the work we've done through our house museums and expanding the interpretation of those museums to be more inclusive, talking about of course the wealthy white uh, owners of those properties but also the enslaved people that they uh, that they had on those properties and the contributions they made towards those uh, those families and the enterprises that were done there you know that's been a, a part of the charleston's history that was sort of swept under the rug for years talk to us about the house museums So, the Aiken Red House is located downtown in a neighborhood called Mazik Ragboro. It's up near the Charleston Museum, is probably the best way to describe it. Um, It's in a residential neighborhood. It was built in around 1818, and it was a grand uh, federal residence that was ultimately owned by Governor Aiken, who obviously was the governor of South Carolina, but also a really important figure Politically, but also um, sort of economically, he owned um, huge rice plantations, one in particular called Jahasi down in the Ace Basin, um, but he owned a lot of different plantations. So he was very, uh, a large rice producer. He owned an insane number of slaves, both in the city at his townhouse, but also in his, on his plantations. Over 800 slaves that he owned just at uh, Jahassi plantation alone. He was also very involved in the early development of the railroad in Charleston. So he was a, an important figure. Um, but this property, what's incredible about it is it has intact, all the outbuildings are intact. So the carriage house, the kitchen house, the laundry, and then the slave quarters that, were, uh, that are located above them are all there intact and have never been really restored or um, altered. So it's this incredible time capsule that allows us to tell the stories of not just the grand mansion and all the important political things that went on there, but it allows us to tell also the important story of the enslaved people that lived on the property, the work that they did there, the pain and the suffering that they uh, endured while living there, and, um, and having the, the, the laundry spaces and, and to see how small um, and, and uh, dimly lit these, uh, these uh, quarters are, really conveys a, a powerful message about the lives that those people lived. And when you don't have those physical spaces that are authentic and, and unchanged, it really, uh, it's difficult to tell those stories in such a dramatic and, and I think impactful way. Um, so we've really pushed on that, we've done a lot of archaeology to better understand not only, the, again, the front house, but really the, the back lot and how the service functions of the house worked with the enslaved people who lived and labored there. Um, we did a, a, a really incredible, a new exhi- relatively new exhibit for, uh, to interpret the laundry building. We did a ton of archaeology and uncovered incredible artifacts to better understand how the laundry operations worked. So, and and the great thing about that property too is it's an audio tour and the tour actually starts in the basement of the building and you sort of talk about the service functions, go out into the slave, uh, enslaved spaces in the, in the back lot. And then once you better understand how that part of the property function, you then climb the stairs and go into the main house. So it kind of frames the interpretation, I think, in an appropriate way and kind of elevates the stories of those people that that lived and labored on the property. Who owns the Aiken Rhett House? So the Aiken Rhett House, we actually purchased it. It was uh, donated by um, the last private owners. They were the Dill sisters and they were descendants of the Rhett family. And they lived there until the 1970s and they gave the property to the Charleston Museum. And the Charleston Museum owned it from about the early 70s until 1995, and then we ended up purchasing it from the Charleston Museum in 95, just because they didn't have the capacity to deal with it. It's a huge property, and it has a lot of conservation, preservation needs, as you could imagine. Um, But one of the unique things also about that property um, is that we took an approach that we kind of call preserved as found. where A lot of house museums uh, the properties are restored back to a certain time period like the Nathaniel Russell House which we own and interpret Um, but this property we just left it as is which one may argue might sound like we're sort of being lazy you know that's the easy approach don't touch it but it's actually one of the most difficult approaches uh, Drayton Hall also does that for their property so it's just the property is preserved as it is and so what you have to do is sort of fight the, uh, you know, the kind of entropy and the decay that happens with these historic materials and, and the parts of the building. Um, so there's constant maintenance and management that we have to do, but it's maybe not as obvious to the uh, casual observer. Tell us what is new and exciting in 2021. Another issue that we are very focused on too, I've been talking a little bit about how we can sort of tell the full histories of our house museums. Um, we have a project at the Nathaniel Russell House where we, have, um, we are sort of peeling back all the layers that were added in the 20th century in the kitchen house at the Russell House. Um, we used to think that it had been altered uh, so greatly in the early 20th century that there was really no remnants of, of the sort of 19th century history there. Well, we started to slowly peel back those layers from the uh, 20th century and have found there's actually incredible uh, original f- uh, finishes and material that are embedded in the walls and under the floorboards. And so, we are embarking on this incredible kitchen house project where we are again, peeling back the layers, finding all this material that are in the floorboards and actually embedded in the walls where it's sort of like archeology, span but we're not digging it out of the ground. We're digging it out of the walls and, and from under the floors. And we are finding incredible artifacts that are embedded in there that we had no idea where they are all along. And so um, that kitchen house project is really important for us, um, and it'll drive the interpretation of that site for, for years to come. And so there's a lot of work to do there. But again, um, what the, that space tells us about urban slavery in Charleston, which has not gotten as much focus as more plantation slavery. Everyone thinks about the rice plantations and, and sort of the, the, the out of town uh, slave activity, but there's not as much um, really forensic uh, research going into urban slavery because again, so many of those spaces either have been demolished or they've been altered so much um, by future owners. And so we have this unique opportunity to really learn a lot more about urban slavery and the lives of those people that, that again lived and labored on, on on that site so another area that we work in that again some people might find surprising is in the affordable housing arena and we helped um, launch uh, something called the palmetto community land trust which is a group that um, that that actually buys or is donated land and they hone, hold ownership of the land but then they uh, can either develop New housing on the site, or uh, there's existing housing on it, and and the the pro- that property can be bought and sold, but the land trust owns the land underneath, so it it ultimately um, reduces the the cost uh, of the property, and 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 actually makes the property affordable in perpetuity, so forever, whereas so many other housing projects that the city does or other groups do actually have a time horizon on them where they will ultimately convert to market rate housing. So the community land trust, really, we just sort of incubated that in the last two years and kind of getting that off the ground and getting its work going in a, a at scale, uh, not only in the city of Charleston, but potentially beyond in the region is, is a really big one. And um, we, are, we got a grant um, just a month ago from a, a private foundation to look at also helping, um, I sort of talked a little bit about some of the cultural changes that have happened on the peninsula with all the influx of new people moving here and the cost of living has gotten so incredible. And so we are losing out on so many um, lower income and a lot of times African American um, residents who used to live downtown who can't afford to live here anymore. And so we're trying to sort of, um, we can't stop gentrification or displacement, but we can try to kind of mitigate it. And so one this new program through this grant that we got, and we're really hoping to grow that in this next year, is to help um, give uh, low interest loans to property owners who live on the peninsula in historic properties to help them uh, fix up their houses. And, and really, we see them as sort of smaller projects, but important ones like repairing your roof so that you're not leaking, the roofs aren't leaking, repairing uh, windows, wood rot, that kind of thing. So that uh, giving people assistance so that they don't feel pressure to have to move uh, in order to you know, afford to live in, in Charleston.
0: How do you balance the desire to preserve Charleston and at the same time create affordable housing?
1: Um, Yeah, we're trying to really diffuse that tension so that it's not this sort of antithetical or polarized approach where you have preservation on one side and you have affordability or livability on the other. It's sort of how can we sort of, I hate to say it, but sort of have it all. Now, I do understand that preservation can be an agent for gentrification, um, but I do think there's an opportunity to uh, recognize the value in having mixed income communities on the peninsula, particularly downtown, but it really goes, you know, all around the region. Um, but really having preservationists and the preservation movement be much more deliberate and and vocal about standing for uh, housing affordability and maybe even potentially relaxing standards in certain parts of the city so that um, people don't feel undue burden uh, from sort of having to, to uh, you know, uh, to to comply with preservation regulations. You know, you don't want to make it so stifling that people can't afford, it's only for the wealthy, you know, and I think the preservation movement over the last couple of years has had a pretty major reckoning in that regard that, you know, we need to do more and do better. And as for us at Historic Charleston Foundation, it's been a major issue for us. As I said, we've um, we've been focused on this issue. We did it, we commissioned a major study in about 2015 to better get better data on the actual um, on gentrification and displacement, we were focused on one neighborhood on the Upper Peninsula called North Central, and really looked. We brought in an expert consultant who works on this kind of stuff on housing policy and um, and demographics and understanding how these communities are changing. Because a lot of times it's sort of an emotional response. You think, oh, this neighborhood's it's it's. It's it's no no longer the same, but you know rather than we wanted to strip the emotion away and really look dig down into the data, and not surprisingly the data did support the emotional response, which is these neighborhoods are changing dramatically, and so what can we do to help slow that down? And again, one of the major recommendations from that report was to. Um, to look into the feasibility of starting uh, this community land trust, which we did. So um, we, we're working in that regard. There's always more work to be done, but we're, we're very excited about the, the possibilities. What are
0: you most proud of in terms of accomplishments at the Historic Charleston Foundation?
1: Well, I think again, it's um, for me, uh, sort of democratizing preservation has been a really important mission of mine, not only personally, but for uh, Historic Charleston Foundation that this isn't an elitist um, movement. It's not an elitist program that it, and, and it's also a lot more, as I said earlier, than just about old buildings and saving old buildings. It's about community, it's about livability It's about um, economic development um, and sort of having people understand how many different areas of city-making, place-making preservation kind of touches is really important. And and doing that in a place like Charleston is easier than other communities. I've worked in preservation in other cities and it's a a lot more difficult. Um, Thankfully in Charleston, preservation is a known quantity. It's sort of baked into the culture here, um, which is great, but I think what's important is that we educate the general public about not only the power preservation, but also um, that it's sort of preservation for everyone and that uh, places like, um, you know, we've been doing a lot of work out at Mosquito Beach, out on James Island. Um, We actually um, funded an effort to get it listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And again, when we tell people that and they go out there and they think, because it's very simple, kind of vernacular buildings, they're not big, fancy houses. And what we're trying to educate people on is you know, preservation is not about columns and big, fancy houses, it's, you know, it's about more than that.